Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. We're in Genesis 25 tonight, and we're picking up where we left off. And um, verse 1, Abraham took a wife. Her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Ledushim, Lemim, and the sons of Midian were Ephath, Epher, Hanak, Abedah, and Eldaah. And these were the children of Keturah. So Genesis, as we've seen in the first 24 chapters, is a book of beginnings. Uh, Vershish was the word, if you remember. And Genesis has been a collection of beginnings. We saw the beginning of the universe, the beginning of life on the earth, the beginning of humans, the beginning of sin, the beginning of God's redemptive plan. And through Abraham, we're seeing the beginning of a nation of Israel or the seed of the Messiah that's going to come from a special group of people and a special tribe within that group and a special city that that tribe uh, sets up. And um, we're going to be looking for Messiah. When we were in church this morning, we were studying Matthew 1. And the first few words of Matthew 1.1 were, this is the book of the genealogies of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham. Um, and and uh, and I thought it was interesting that the wording there, that the, the, the genealogy word in Greek is actually Genesis. So the very first verse of Matthew is written up and set up like it's another edition of Genesis. And... Um, and Matthew's writing it that way. He's basically saying this is the, the book of Genesis for Jesus Christ or the beginnings of what happens. And the whole narrative of Jesus Christ is all of that. So sometimes when we see things end, like Sarah dying and, and whatnot, you think, well, where's the beginnings in there? And essentially, it's all a beginning. The whole book of Matthew is the beginning of the narrative of Jesus Christ. And it ends with Jesus saying, I'll be with you until the end of the age. And, and everything since when Matthew was written to today, Matthew was the genesis or, or how the church starts and how following Jesus Christ begins. And Genesis is the same thing, only for the entire Judeo-Christian narrative. It's the beginning of the Bible. And so we see a lot of these kind of starts and beginnings. And we're passing things along. So we're wrapping up the narrative of Abraham, and we're going to pass the narrative over to Isaac. Um, so we have to kind of see a lot of these things kind of end before we can see the next set of beginnings. This uh, first few verses, the first four verses of Genesis 25, are, are quoted in 1 Chronicles 32 and 33, almost word for word. So when they put the book of Chronicles together, they take all of these lineage pieces and they, they assemble them like a puzzle to give the entire genealogy of of all the people of the earth in Chronicles. So just so you know that that shows up later in the massive, super epic genealogy that was probably uh, 
uh, project inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, oh, we should collect all the genealogies and put them in one place. So it does pop up later on. There's a promise that Abraham would not just be the father of Israel. Remember the promise to Abraham was that he'd be the father of many nations. And sure enough, when you look at this list, uh, three of them stick out and they should stick out as entire nations. Sheba, later on uh, when the message of Jesus Christ is getting shared, uh, Sheba is one of those areas. Solomon makes a pact with the queen of Sheba, remember that? Uh, And there's even always rumors and gossip will always emerge every few years that Sheba is actually housing the Ark of the Covenant and that Solomon gave it to them or the Israelites gave it to the Sheba Africans when they thought that Babylon was going to come and destroy them or whatever. So we don't know where the Ark is, but that's one thought. Dedan's another one that's going to pop up later, and the Midianites are going to pop up later as other nations. And of course, Abraham's the father of those nations too. Um, Midian is the group where, remember, that's another kind of ally group at one point in history. Remember when Moses flees from Egypt after he kills the Egyptian soldier? He goes to Midian, and he does sheep with the Midianites and hangs out with them, and he lives with the Midianites for almost 40 years. Um, So there's nations here that are also nations that came from Abraham that aren't necessarily uh, enemies of Israel, and they are um, not in, in conflict all the time like the 12 sons of Ishmael, Abraham's other son, are. Apparently, Abraham is not as old as he let on in the last chapter. So if you look at the last chapter, he's like, I am old and stricken with years and blah, 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 and take my inheritance and put your hand under my thigh and all that kind of stuff. But he's apparently not that old because he marries Keturah and he makes a whole bunch more babies. Um, So he has six more kids after that I'm old business. So he's not... uh, the writer is not uh, especially significant. Uh, he, this isn't meant to stand out that much, so I'm not going to spend that much time on it. But it's important in the next verse that Abraham is really careful to set Isaac apart from the others in some really notable ways, especially with the inheritance. So listen for that in the next couple of verses. And it's not hard to hear. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. So he has six other kids. Then Ishmael, that's seven other kids. But he gives everything he has to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. So he might love these other sons, even give them gifts, but they're not the inheritors. And note that he's really careful to get them out of the country so they don't become competition for Isaac later on. And I think that's Abraham still being faithful to the promise. Uh, Verse 7, the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived... 175 years. He is a ripe old man. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people, and his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. Shows over time that there isn't necessarily bad blood between Isaac and Ishmael. Remember when Ishmael was a teenager and Isaac was first born, they sent Ishmael away. Seemingly that's not something that's kept them apart. And I think it's kind of cool. Sometimes Funerals bring families together, even when there is bad blood. So Ishmael was loved by Abraham, and of course Ishmael's going to be there for his funeral. And Isaac and, and Ishmael are in agreement on where to bury him. They bury him with Sarah. Uh, the gathered to his people is to bring together, assemble, harvest, and to bring in. That's an interesting phrase when you're talking about death. Did you see that? Breathed his, he died. He breathed his last, 
which is a spiritual thing, and died. So the, it actually says die in kind of two different ways. An old man full of years and was gathered to his people. So I think it's a beautiful phrase to use when somebody dies because it's not that he's leaving his family or parting from this earth. He's actually being gathered to his people that went before him. Um, and I just thought that was kind of a nice thought, that, that dying means that you are being assembled, harvested, that God's bringing you home. Um, and it's a term that gets used with agriculture. So it really is about bringing in herds or crops and gathering them and putting them together. Um, in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, you should remember that term because that's where Sarah was buried. In the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried and Sarah, his wife. So like you all said, this is a sad chapter. We get to say goodbye to Abraham. It's been around for a number of, we've been with Abraham for a couple months now. Uh, the location of this burial site is known to the entire household. Uh, both Isaac and Ishmael are at the wedding. Uh, Ephron's family knows where this is and all the Hittites. So note that that's all being named in verse nine. That's four different entire groups of people that know and can validate where this site is. Um, so Machpelah, Mamre, Ephron, the Hittite, the Hittite records. Remember this cave was purchased before all of the people. Where that isn't striking to us today, the location is noted, recorded, and it's cross-culturally agreed upon. So we actually are really rooted in history at this point. And for me, that's a validator of the Bible, that the Bible doesn't rely on itself um, to be truthful and accurate. It actually is perfectly comfortable also being shared with these other cultures and it names them and that location has been known till today. Verse 11, it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt at Beher Lahe Royoi. Remember the name of Beher Lahe Royoi? That's the same place that Rebecca came riding in on her high camel and, swept, and Isaac uh, swept her into the tent and they got married. So he hasn't really moved. That's where he kind of keeps his sheep, is in that area of the world. It's also the same well where Hagar called on the Lord and asked God to see her. It's the, the uh, God, uh, God sees well, the, where the living, the well of the living one who sees me <clears throat> is the translation. Uh, back in Genesis 16, uh, that's where God is a witness and sees Hagar and blesses her. So God switches from one generation to the next, and that transition is super clear in, in uh, verse 11, that Isaac is now the focus of our story. We're going to get into uh, another genealogy in verse 12. <clears throat> this is the Genesis or the genealogy of Ishmael. So we're moving into another Toldah which is a, a record of a family. And we're clearly moving from one scroll to the other scroll. And oddly enough, they didn't put the chapter division there. They put the chapter division at verse one. Um, but it's really clear that verse 12 is the beginning of a new piece because it starts the same way all of our other toldoths have started. And remember, um, Genesis is made up of a collection of these toldoths or these stories of families. So verse 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. Abraham's son, who's, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. These were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Ab 
Adbeil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. Hagar was uh, promised in chapter 16 and chapter 21 that Ishmael would prosper, would prosper, and it's easy to see that he has prospered. Note that there's 12 sons of Ishmael, and Isaac will also, or uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, will also have 12 sons. There'll be 12 tribes of Israel. Um, all this information could have easily been shared because we just saw in verse 1 that Isaac and Ishmael are hanging out at the funeral together. So it's like a big family reunion. And, and Ishmael's saying, well, yeah, here's my 12 kids and blah, blah, blah. And then those things get written down here because that's what's happening. However, this is uh, uh, really the last we're going to see of Ishmael. We're kind of closing the chapter on his life. Uh, in the same way that we kind of closed the chapter on Lot back a few chapters ago and we closed the chapter on Esau. Those are branches of the storyline, but they're also kind of, because Hagar, the Egyptian, she's not in the line of Messiah, and so we're going to kind of wrap that up and move on. But I think it's there because it shows that God kept his promise to Hagar and Ishmael that he would prosper them. So when you see that list, it's basically the Bible saying, and God kept that promise to Ishmael. He is thriving and he's doing well. Uh, verse 16, these were the sons of Ishmael. These were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go towards Assyria, and he died in the presence of all his brethren, which is kind of a cool account. And again, the Lord blessed him, and he had a good life. And uh, there's not a, an issue or bad blood there. That was in their youth, maybe, but seems like they they made good. Ishmael dies with honor. There's another kind of pet. When I kind of thought about those verses, it's like you know he he dies with honor and he dies a good life and and has done well. Gathered to his people indicates perhaps he went to the same place Abraham did. So God blesses him, and it's not that God picks and chooses, uh, that there are people outside of the the Hebrew <laughs> nation that can go to heaven, uh, and uh, they don't have the monopoly on God's connection because God loves people all over the planet. Verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. That is the shortest genealogy in the entire Bible. And so when we look at it, it's in 19, it's called a genealogy. And the only genealogy that's needed is that Abraham begot Isaac, period. That's the genealogy. So at this point in the Bible, Abraham is the starting point. He's the beginning. So when we look at genealogies, even in the New Testament, they oftentimes start with Abraham. Uh, one of the rule breakers, and I forget which gospel it was, actually starts with Adam and Eve. Is that, which one is that? Is that John? Luke starts with Adam and Eve. Um, right. So this idea of starting uh, with Abraham as the father of the nations kind of begins with verse 19. Um, so if you go all the way back to Genesis 11:27, we saw Terah, and it says this is the history of Jacob in a similar way that it says this is the history genealogy of Isaac. Uh, which is where the last Toldoth kind of started. So we have a lot of work being done by Moses here to kind of establish that this is a new beginning 
a new start and a new genesis. And the story of Isaac's going to be that. Also, where we see this much work being done to set up the narrative, I think that, and the more I pray about it, there's still lots of typology and things we can see that are symbolic. But we've went through a few chapters where we keep looking at Abraham the father, Sarah the law, Rebecca the bride, Isaac the groom, and it sets up this entire narrative that looks like what God's going to do with Jesus Christ. And I think that between when Abraham gets his name changed and here, you could do that and it set up one continuous narrative with the whole thing, the sacrifice on the altar, all of those things building up. But it shifts gears a lot here. So I would say if there's more typology, we'd have to, it would, the framework might change a little bit because we've lost Abraham and we've lost Sarah. So we've lost some of the characters for that mirroring of the gospel to happen. Um, not to say there aren't more lessons to be learned because there's lots. Um, so we've seen Adam and Eve's told off, Noah's told off, Abraham's told off, and now we're transitioning to Isaac's told off. Um, and as we tra tradition, there's a few genealogies. They're tying up loose ends for Ishmael and they're tying up loose ends for Isaac's other kids. But the Bible is clearly pointing a giant neon arrow at Isaac. He's the guy. He's the one that got the blessing. He's the one the inheritance goes to. He wasn't the oldest son of Abraham, but he was the oldest son of Sarah. Um, and he's the one that God promised. He's the child of the promise. Verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. We'll call that a late bloomer. And the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padam Aram and the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah's wife conceived. Um, in verse 26, you'll notice that uh, they'd been married for 20 years without a child because they got married when they were 40. And in verse 26, you can see that the child came when they were 60, right? So depending on how you count the nine months of pregnancy, that's either 19 or 20 years that they had to wait. And, I, and this is where I started thinking about, like, wow, did God wait for Isaac to pray before the baby would come? Because you'd think at 40 that baby would come right away. But this is the second generation where God has made both Abraham and now Isaac wait a really long time to get what they want. So when we pray for things, even big audacious things, we might need to wait 20 years, and that's not unlike the God we read about in the Bible. It's very like the God we read about in the Bible, because sometimes I think he wants one of two things, or maybe lots of other things. But for Abraham, he wanted Abraham to trust in God, and before that trust was in place in a very kind of pure kind of way, God was waiting on on the birth of Isaac. And he... And he, and, and Abraham had to wait longer than he thought he would to see some of those blessings. And in this case, it might just be that he is waiting for Isaac to pray, because as soon as he prays, God grants his plea in verse 21. So how many times in our life do we not pray for things because they're too big, they're too audacious, or we think we've, they, we've got it coming? Because Abraham would have told Isaac about the promises. For many years, he would have been saying, this is, you're gonna, a nation's going to come for you, God told me this. And God's promised these things to Isaac too. So is God just waiting for him to pray? And or is there something Isaac needs to work out? And, and we saw from the last chapter, Isaac obeys um, quickly. Uh, so it's not that Isaac's out of compliance. He obeys his father on the altar. He doesn't go into Egypt. He stays in Gerar and, and operates with uh, Abimelech. So he doesn't necessarily 
straight in the same way that his father did, which is really cool. Um, Verse 22, but the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. It's interesting, like they didn't have ultrasounds, so they couldn't do a thing where they rub the goo on the belly and, you know, shoot audio waves in and it goes, and the doctor says, well, look, you have twins in there. See, there's one and there's two. They didn't have that. She just had a really painful pregnancy. And she's like, why is there all this thrashing and kicking and what's going wrong? I think it's awesome that Rebecca inquires of the Lord. She goes to the Lord herself. Uh, she doesn't go through her husband or there's, there isn't a limitation, which shows that her faith was genuine, which is why we saw an active, enthusiastic young lady at the well that got the attention of the servant that's within her character. And the Lord said to her, and the same way that the Lord talked to Sarah, the Lord's also going to talk to Rebecca. Uh, so the Lord talks to uh, these couples in a pr- fairly equitable way. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. This isn't exactly a Riddler riddle. I mean, this is pretty straightforward, but it's, you know, uh, it's going to take some time for these things to come through. So that's part of the narrative that we're setting up and that we'll see happen. The Bible never indicates anything other than that God sees life starting in the womb. So if you look really careful at this, in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and he says it in the present tense that they're nations. So when you think of God being timeless, this is one of those passages that really, you can't explain this unless God is timeless. God sees what is already happening as though it's already happened. And being outside of time, he can say there are two nations in your womb. And they are, they'll be separated from your body. Good, she's going to have birth. And one will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Uh, There is no doubt in the Bible where God sees life beginning. If you look at Jeremiah 1.5, God says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God sees life beginning before any life gets formed in the womb. So when we have debates today, this is kind of a hot button issue today, is where does life begin? Life begins when God creates a human being. And it's often, according to the Bible, and in this particular, in the Jeremiah verse, it's before they're even in the womb. So when that life starts to form and those cells start to come together, there's already a spirit that's going to go there. Um, So there's two nations. God sees things like they already are. The struggle is going to continue all the way into their adult years. This is the genesis of a story of two brothers that don't get along, where um, we see uh, Isaac and Ishmael amending and, and making amends on things. It's going to take a lifetime. Uh, for the next two uh, brothers to get along that kind of way. Uh, there's younger over the older. That's again, I just want to point, it, point out here, again and again and again in human history, we think of the eldest son. It, across cultures, the eldest son becomes the inheritor of things. Biblically, that's just not the case. Rarely is it the case in the biblical line. It's not the oldest son that takes the inheritance. Um, it's the son that God picks. It's the anointing that takes the inheritance. Uh, which, going back to Matthew 1 again, is I think what Matthew is trying to set up with this whole genealogy that he does in chapter 1. 
is he's trying to say, look, the lineage is clear here. What's not clear is if Jesus was anointed or not. So let me write a whole book to show you how this man was anointed by God, that he is the Messiah. But it wasn't the genealogy that was the problem. And, and Matthew's trying to say, look, we've seen this before biblically. We've seen these situations that happen all the time. So God's sovereignty sees across time. He is pre-birth. Um, and Paul notices this too in Romans 9.11, that inheritance is based on the heart, the actions, or whether or not we know God. You don't get the inheritance if you don't do the work of loving the Lord and building the relationship. It doesn't matter if you're the oldest. It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish. It doesn't matter if you have um, a uh, brother or sister that loves the Lord. It's do you love the Lord or don't you? And your inheritance is entirely dependent on your heart and where your heart is at. God also looks at post-death uh, in Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Uh, he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. These are the two nations that are in our womb, by the way. I'm, I'm, I hope that's a reminder for most people. Rebecca's about to give birth to Jacob and Esau. But he basically says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. So God can speak in the past tense about people too. And he knows these, these people exist before they're born in the womb and they exist after they're born in the womb. Um I think it's interesting as we see this conflict and how it's going to play out and that God can see that Jacob will be the one that inherits the blessing, not Esau. That's a clear argument for predetermination. You could really twist this into Calvinism really quick, right? But I don't know if that's the case. There's a story that needs to play out and just because God knows how it's going to play out doesn't mean that he's controlling every little bit about human decisions. I don't think the Bible ever says God has determined these things. He's just saying this is how it's going to be. This is how it'll play out. Um, Esau then is someone that the translation for Esau I've hated is that it's strong language, but God just didn't like Esau. You look at Cain and Abel, remember when they gave their sacrifices and God accepted the sacrifice of Abel, but he did not accept the sacrifice of Cain. And it wasn't that their sacrifices weren't both fruit of their labors. It's that there was something going on in their heart. God doesn't need the sacrifice. He owns the whole planet. What he wants is the heart to be in love with God. Uh, David Gusick quotes uh, a story about a woman that went up, came up to Charles Spurgeon. You know who he is? Old Bible guy. Awesome sermons and writings. This guy, he's just wonderful. And the woman comes up to Spurgeon and says, I can't understand why God would say that he hated Esau. That's such strong language. And Spurgeon replied, I don't have any difficulty with that. I have difficulty of where the Bible says he loved Jacob. That's the hard part. We, as humans, we all give God reasons to not like what we do. We are selfish. We think of ourselves before God's kingdom. We sin. We stray. Our minds go in weird places. Uh, it's a daily struggle with our flesh to try to live up to the example of Jesus Christ. Um, and in that sense, the reason he loves Jacob, we're not going to see that Jacob is the perfect example of humanity, but he loves the Lord. He actually values what he's going to get. So verse 24, when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. Promise, God promised it. That's what happened. God was the ultimate ultra, ultrasound uh, when he gave her that prophecy. Verse 25, <clears throat> and the first came out red. <laughs> and he was like a hairy garment all over. 
So they called his name Harry, which is what Esau means in the Hebrew. Afterwards, verse 26, his brother came out and his hand had taken hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, translated heel holder. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So we know that it was 20 years before that, that promise came to be. So we have two kids, Harry and heel holder. Rebecca and, and Isaac were not told what to call their son because Isaac got this great name, Laughter, and it's because God said, you shall call him Isaac. So I'm thinking so far, Abraham's family is really bad at giving people names. Uh, and and, and, uh, and I, Isaac and Rebecca are horrible. They, they come out that way and, and they say that. So Esau's name, Harry, is also rough. I remember when Grant was born, uh, Steph loves this story. Grant came out with a head full of hair, and it was matted with all sorts of baby goop, and I thought it was his head without a skull on it. So I had that thought, and he's coming out, and I'm like, I'm having a child that has no skull. That's his brain. I thought I was looking at his brain. So I got super white-faced. I started grabbing the bed. And the doctor and the nurses all looked at me, and, and I guess I'd gone pretty white. And they said, are you okay? Are you all right? And then Steph got upset. She's like, I'm the one having the baby here. And, uh, but it's definitely the case that some babies come out with hair. That's not uncommon. It happens even today. Grant was one of those people. And, and when I came to my senses, if I were uh, Rebecca and, and Isaac, I could have said, let's call Grant Harry. Let's name him based on the first thought we have when we see him. And the first thought they have with Jacob is heel holder. Um, so I don't know. I, I think maybe letting God name your kids might be a, a better strategy for this family. Uh, heel holder is not a good name. It's not a nice name. It's not the kind of name you give a child. Um, in this society, it meant to snare or trap someone. Like if you're walking and a trap catches your heel, um, it's the same word that you would use for hunting and doing that sort of thing. It's not a kind word or a nice word. Um, and uh, and the Jews tradition went on to even believe that it meant a usurper, that someone that would take power. I think that actually is because of the story of Jacob and Esau, not the other way around. The actual translation is heel holder. Uh, and then it came to mean someone that would take the blessing from their uh, older elder. Verse 27, so the boys grew. That's how the Bible does long periods of history. So we just passed, you know, a couple decades with four words. So the boys grew. Um, I even like the word so in this translation. So the boys grew. So that's it. They came, they were named, and then they grew up. How often in childhood uh, and teenage years and college years, in the, even in the Bible, they're almost irrelevant years. One of the only people where we get to hear about their childhoods are David and Jesus where there's something that happens in that youth that's really significant and, and that they make a name for themselves uh, in some sort of way. But often in the Bible, it's just so they grew. They got bigger. Um, what's the prime duty of a young man or woman as they grow? If we look at the Bible, there are, the outcome of grow, in verse 27, the outcome is either that you're an Esau or you're a Jacob. You're a, a person that pursues the world or you're a person that pursues God. And God knows your heart on that. He knows if you pine for the world or he knows if you pine for him. And I think that that's the entire purpose of growing up is that, which is why I mock my own profession sometimes. It is not how much you know. It is not uh, 
anything other than do you pursue God or don't you? It's nice to have some skills of value, but you can always do manual labor if you don't get skills of value. Um, so even that. But Esau, of course, has skills of value. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. The last time we saw that word hunter was when they were talking about Nimrod. It was not a compliment. With Nimrod, it was a, um, a um, forceful hunter or someone who trapped people. Uh, and he was a forceful hunter before God, so he did it in the face of God. Esau's a skillful hunter, uh, which is more implication of in practice. He was actually really good at hunting. But think about this for a second. Did they need hunters at this point in history? Abraham and Isaac had inherited vast wealth. We've already seen that in this family, Esau has herds and sheep and servants there's a virtual moving city that they have to take care of. And as the inheritor of that city, in a worldly sense, he's out hunting stuff in the wilderness. This is not a guy that's taking seriously that he's going to inherit the family business. So to get good at hunting, he must have put in quite a few hours, a man of the field. Um, these lands are completely settled at this point in history. So he had to be fairly clever to get anything. Uh, because those lands wouldn't have had a lot of game left in them. Um, so option one is that, and this is the way some people present Esau, is that he's a man's man. He's in the field, he's hunting, he's doing stuff, and that's one way to present Esau as a character. Option two, and I kind of like this one better, he's a guy that spends time away from the camp, that what he worships is time by himself. Instead of owning and tending the organization that he's supposed to, supposedly going to inherit, He's out doing his own thing. So another way to present Esau is not that he's a man's man and he's grizzly and burly and hairy. Uh, the hairy part's true, I, I guess, but another way to present Esau is that he's selfish. He's living for himself instead of taking on the responsibilities that are right in front of his face. He's not a learner. He's not learning how to lead from Isaac. He's not learning how to take care of things. So here's a prince um, that is not behaving like a prince, uh, which is not unknown in history. There's lots of princes that don't care about the kingdom that they're supposed to inherit. In fact, we see movie, moms' romance movies all the time have these princes that are like, I don't care about the kingdom, I just want love. And that's not a responsible prince. And, and Esau looks like a prince that doesn't really particularly spend a lot of time in the kingdom. Look at how Jacob's presented. But Jacob was a mild man, another word for mild is plain, dwelling in the tents. So likewise, uh, the word plain or mild in the Hebrew is the word tam. It means, and this is interesting because the translation in English, you'd think, oh, he's a timid, he's a quiet, like meek, bookwormy type. That's not what the word means. The word means perfect, fulfilled, undefiled, or whole. He's a whole man. Um, this is the only place in the Bible where that word is translated, where tam is translated as plain or mild. No other place in the Bible is it translated that way. Uh, so it's interesting, if you read this in the original Hebrew, that word throughout the entire Bible almost always goes with the word upright. He was whole and upright. And there are multiple, go into Strong's Concordance and look up the word tam. Every other instance that I could see at a glance, tam went with upright. So when you describe Jacob as a whole man, you could almost, by implication, you could almost say he was a whole and upright man. And he dwelled in those tents. So one way to present, uh, oh, and then the dwelling, and then I'll get to this. 
The dwelling is yashav, which means to remain, to sit, to abide. In other words, Jacob is a whole man who abides in the camp. And that's another completely different way to present that. So this implied that Jacob stayed at home and managed the family business while Esau was out playing hunter in the wilderness. And that's one way to present it. I think that view of those two characters fits with the rest of the story much, much better. But I've always heard Jacob and Esau presented as Jake. Esau is the big, burly, hardy guy that likes to hunt. And Jacob was the guy that liked to hang home with mama and cook meals, which we're going to see him cooking a meal. But that doesn't necessarily mean he was a mama's boy. Um, that's not what that verse uh, implies, that if he's a whole man that abides with the camp, uh, he's taking care of that family business. That's what a prince should do. And so even from a young age, uh, and even after they've grown, it's really clear that Jacob is wants to take on this responsibility, and Esau kind of doesn't. Which would be an easy call for Isaac, right? Give the inheritance to Jacob. That makes a lot of sense. The character of Jacob is one where he deserves it. He's looking after it and let Esau be a hunter. They both get what they want. But there's a problem with that, which is verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So you have mom and dad, both have their favorites. There's a clear split here. Isaac appreciates Esau, is out working, bringing home some bacon, literally. Um, I like that there's only two words here, and Jacob loved Esau, and we have because he ate his game, or of his game, which is six words, but in the Hebrew, it's only two words. It's because barbecue, and that's the translation is literally, and Jacob loved Esau because barbecue, and that's all that you need to say. Like, he brought home meat, he cooked it, and that's all there was to it. Rebecca loves J- Jacob, which is, I think, where we get the image that he was kind of a mama's boy. But I think Rebecca loves Jacob because he's around, he's taking care of things, he's responsible. Every other reason you might appreciate your kid, that they're doing what they need to do in life. But Isaac really just likes the good barbecue, which you don't necessarily get by hanging around in the camp. The other thing with Rebecca loving Jacob, I don't think you need explanation for why moms love their kids. I think moms just love They don't really need any other reason, and we don't get any other reason in the Bible. So imagine if your wife or your husband, Katie, imagine that your spouse believed that the son you liked less was going to be the ruler over the elder. What would you do if the one you liked is the one your spouse says that person's not going to rule? Because remember, the prophecy came to Rebecca, not necessarily to Isaac. So even though they have a loving relationship, Rebecca's seeing the prophecy coming true, and she's seeing a husband that just doesn't want to agree with that. So the thing he's got left is barbecue, and that's a powerful pull on anyone's kind of thing. So the other piece here is that Isaac, in some degree, has to trust Rebecca and what she says about what God said to her. So it's possible to love both your kids. It's also possible to have some favorites. In this particular case, favoritism causes some issues. God's going to have to intervene because Isaac is going to give this thing to Esau because he likes the barbecue. And he wants his oldest son, his uh, son that's out doing things and independent, he wants that person to inherit it. So it looks like God has another problem with the Messiah line because God's picked Jacob well before he was born. There's a distinction here that indicates Isaac's already fully intending to give that inheritance to Esau. But in verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. So God's word, God's promise is what's at stake here. 
Um, it's not clear if I, Rebecca told Isaac the prophecy or if she kept it secret. The Bible's silent on that. Uh, if she told him, then he's clearly rejecting what she told him. Um, but we don't get to see inside that part of the story. It's a question for heaven. All we know is what happens next. Esau is going to sell his birthright. And um, verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew or sod pottage. It might be translated in the Old King James. Sod is not is not boil or cook. Um, sodding is different than boiling or cooking. Uh, so it's a different word. Figuratively, in all other uses of the word zud, it means to presume something or to be proud of something. So follow me on this. I know I'm just talking about making stew, but I thought this was really cool. The better translation of this, I think, or if you look at how Zud gets translated, it's now Jacob prided his stew. He took pride in his stew, uh, which sets up a different kind of story, right? He's making the stew, not just any stew. He's not just cooking for the sake of cooking. He's making the stew. Uh, he is a master chef, and that's what this would kind of imply. It's kind of like when mom makes her pie. We don't really say a lot of words around that. We just know that mom's making the pie, right? We know it's fall. She's got a bag of apples in the kitchen, and she's making her pie. And that's kind of how this is translated. But you can see in the English, depending on what version you're looking at, this is a hard thing to translate. So now Jacob sawed pottage or Jacob cooked a stew, I don't think quite carries that connotation that he's cooking the stew, which is what Zood uh, generally means, to act with pride or to do something with pride. In verse 33, we see that the source of this stew is lentils. You see that? <laughs> so in medical news today, red lent lentils have been studied. They're a world-class source of non-hemi iron. So for people like me that have low iron counts and I have to find ways to get iron in my blood system, uh, red lentils are one of the most amazing foods on earth. They're the food when you're feeling faint and weary. People with low iron content uh, have to eat these kinds of things or what happens is they get faint and weary to the point of passing out. And yes, you guys have all heard stories of when I've passed out, but I pass out because my iron content isn't high enough. One of the foods that helps with that is this sod pottage that gets made or this lentil stuff. One cup of red lentils is a third of your daily needs of iron that you there. They also have other good stuff like fiber, folic acid, potassium, calcium, magnesium. And essentially these lentils, they're really good for you. Red or what they're called today are massor lentils are abundant in this part of the world, but they take a ton of time to put together. So to make this stew, Jacob or one of his servants would have had to take each lentil and, and take off the outer shell of it. So you got to remove the hulls to cook these things, and it takes an enormous amount of time. It's like peeling your grapes. So it would take a day to sod pottage. Like this is a project that he's taking on. Um, and that we know people that seasonally, once a year, they make that special something that they make, and they put a lot of time and love into it. It's like when the Italians make red sauce or um, uh, when Mike Fernandez cooks barbecue on 4th of July and uh, seasons his meats and does everything. To take the time to hull all these lentil shells would have been an enormous project. You boil them and you puree them so they're almost like refried beans. And when they're stewed, that stew would take time. 
but it's perfect for refreshing the body, and it's definitely something to be proud of. If you season them well, they can be amazingly, but if you're not a chef, all you're gonna do is walk in the room, you're gonna look at the pot and say, I'll have some of that red stuff. You might not have a name for it, which explains the next few verses. Verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, I love when the Bible does that. And he was weary. And then he says, and I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So he came in from the field. He was not hunting today. Apparently he was in the field, or maybe he was hunting in the field. Uh, but he has no apparent source of meat. Uh, he's coming in empty-handed. He doesn't have a deer over his shoulders or anything. He's exhausted. And if he... And, if, and definitely if he's exhausted, one of the things that's going to refresh his iron count, especially because he has no meat to do that with, is going to be some of this red lentil stew. He was weary. Um, that can come from low red blood count cells. It can also just come from working hard for a very long period of time and being exhausted. Um, but one of the chief causes of fatigue when you're exhausted is iron efficiency. The words same and red please feed me with that same red stew. The two words, same and red, they translated them differently, but in the Hebrew, it just says, Adam, Adam. It says the same word two times. So please feed me with that red, red stew is how that should be. I don't know why they would do that. Why would, in the English, would you make it two different words when in the Hebrew, it's the same word two times? Maybe they felt like they didn't want to repeat it. So... The pottage and stew, notice that that's in italics. So that wasn't actually in the Hebrew. Do you see that? Or your Bible should have that in italics. So it says, please feed red, red. Weary. <laughs> so it kind of sounds like Esau talks like a caveman and looks like one too. Um, but essentially the Hebrew translation is feed begging or I beg you red, red. Adam is actually a color in the Hebrew. It's not hard to translate. The color is red. Uh, and, and so he's looking at this stew, and that's what he's seeing. And with, when we know it's lentils, we know that that's that kind of lentil that has those kinds of things. Um, I remember when we were ice fishing and I had to dig one of those holes. That was the first time I passed out from exhaustion. And I wasn't even that tired. I was just like, wow, I'm losing my sight. And then the sight just went, whoop. And the next thing I knew, I was woke up in, in Jim Moorhead's truck, and they were all like, are you okay? We thought you died or something like that. And I was just like, no, I just thought to myself, well, oh, I'm not feeling entirely there right now. And then I was gone. Feed, I beg you, red, red. He's called Edom. That's probably a Moses edition. Uh, it shows the source of the name Edomites, and Edomites means red ones. <laughs> so this is an interesting kind of, in the Hebrew, I think this is kind of funny. Um, and there's a tone here and a thing, and therefore his name was called red ones. Like this is what he's known for, for the rest of his life. How would you like to die and be known for the fact, and all the people that descend from you are known as people that gave their birthright up for the red, red stew. Like you're giving up things of the kingdom, the eternal things, and you're taking a good meal. Uh, it must have been really good. Jacob says in verse 31, sell me your birthright as of this day. You want my stew? Why don't you sell me your birthright? Also notice that Isaac loved 
Esau because he brought home the barbecue. And this is the day he doesn't bring home the barbecue. That the world has failed him this day. He does not bring home the delight of his father. And this is the day that Jacob is going to get that birthright. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what's this birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew. Here, you can have more than my stew. I'll give you bread too. Uh, And stew of lentils. And then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Wow. Don't read over that too fast. I don't see this as Jacob being conniving or twisted. If the interpretation of Esau is always away from the camp and Jacob's always there taking care of it, and Jacob said he's probably thinking, you know, I'm running this camp. I'm the one learning everything from dad. I'm the one that knows how to run the family business. So if you don't care about this birthright, how about you just give it to me? And what's interesting, and I'll get into a few thoughts on this, the writer of Hebrews uses this story to point out how bitterness and sin is a cheap trade-off for the blessings of God. Why could why would Esau give up the birthright? And that's the big question here. Mom and I were just talking today about how we read the Bible, we ask questions. And one of the questions here is why would Esau give it up? What would drive a normal human being to say, sure, I'll trade you my birthright for a bowl of stew? Um, and giving up a birthright, that's a legal term. And in in and we know this that a birthright meant double the inheritance from any of your brothers and sisters. So you got a double share of the inheritance, but it also meant you were the head of the home and the law of the home. So whoever gets the birthright, when dad dies, you're the head of the household. You take over that role and you have everyone that you're responsible for in that household. The third thing that birthright means is that you're the priest of the family. Remember, they don't have Levites. The head of the household, Abraham was the priest for that family. And you become the spiritual leader, the legal leader, and the financial leader of that home. That's a huge thing to give up for a bowl of stew. So let me give you a few reasons. And if you can think of any others, let's talk about them afterwards. Why would Esau give up his birthright? So number one, he's actually hungry. And he's not thinking straight. So he's confused. I can resonate with this. There are times when I'm so tired that I'll pay ridiculous hourly rates for a good back rub. Like I'll trade off 10 minutes of back rub for like $10. I'm paying a buck a minute for a good back rub. And it makes sense. You're tired. There's certain things you want. And so little things take on a much higher value than they should have because you're wearied and tired. And frankly, that 10 bucks is worth every penny. And you're thinking, yes, that bowl of red red is worth every penny. What do you want for it? Reason number two. Maybe Esau doesn't want the responsibilities that come with the birthright. What's it to me, he says, right? I'm about to die. What's a birthright to me? So he likes to be out in the field. He actually likes to hunt. And we know people, I know people like this. They would rather not have the responsibility and they'd rather just go do their own thing. So there's, that's a kind of selfishness. It's also a kind of freedom. And the birthright does not mean freedom. It means responsibility. Um... Another thought, Isaac's not dead yet. So Isaac's still the head of the household. He's still the family priest and he's still there. So maybe Esau's thinking, I'll take a meal now because Isaac's not going to die anytime soon. Abraham lived to 170 whatever, right? And he's thinking, I got 100 years. 
before dad's going to die if he lives as long as grandpa did. So I don't, what's my birth? What's that to me? I'll take the meal, thank you. And a and hundred years later, we'll sort out who inherits what. So if this is a one-on-one -on -one conversation between Jacob and Esau, maybe Esau figures nobody will ever know because it's my word against his. So give me the stew because I'll take the stew now versus, and I can lie about it later. So maybe, and, and he's called profane later on. Uh, so maybe that's part of Esau's sinful nature is that he just doesn't care. Um, maybe he's already been told by Rebecca and Jacob that Jacob will rule and that there's a prophecy about it. Maybe Esau's already kind of like, I'm at the point of dying, what's the birthright to me? Because he's thinking, I, the prophecy says you're going to be in charge. So yeah, sure, you can have it. Why would I fight that? So that's another reason he might give up the prophecy. I had a lot of these. I, I spent some time on this. Here's the profane part of it, though, right? And this goes back to um, Hebrews. The short-term versus the long-term. There's a physical want versus a spiritual need. There's a practical versus the promise. Overall, Esau doesn't clearly want this birthright because he doesn't give it a lot of value. That's what's wrong with Esau. That instead of living for, I want more responsibility in my life because that's the purpose or the meaning of my life is taking on more responsibility. That's where you get meaning. But instead of taking on responsibility, he's trying to get rid of it. His appetite trumps his spiritual life. And in this, we can't just look at Esau and say, what an idiot. We all do this. Our appetite, our immediate needs trump our spiritual and our eternal needs. And it happens again and again and again. It's often interpreted that Jacob's being kind of a swindler here. That's one way to interpret this, that he's swindling Esau. Another way to interpret this is Esau is willingly giving up something that he doesn't value very highly. He just doesn't care. Um, and he's going to live that way the rest of his life. He gives us a birthright now, but he's always been abandoning spiritual things. He doesn't tend to those things. Spiritual things to a person who's not of God are a waste of time. Have you ever met someone or talked to somebody where you're like, oh, I love the Lord and I'm going to church and they look at you like you're nuts. Because they're like, why are you wasting your time with all that stuff? I stopped going to church years ago. I stopped reading the Bible. What a waste of my time. And there are lots of people walking this planet where the things of the spiritual world are just not worth their time. They're too far in the distance. They're too practical. Um, it is not uncommon to be like Esau in this story. What is uncommon is to be like Jacob and to say, when you have somebody that says, I want this, to say, what I want is that spiritual inheritance that you have. Give me your birthright. I want what you've got. Every Gentile that accepts Jesus Christ is basically saying to the Jewish people, I want the inheritance that God promised your people. I want to be grafted in to the family of Christ in a really powerful way. And I think that's essentially what we do when we become believers. So I've mentioned Hebrews a couple times. I'm actually mentioning Hebrews 12. And I'm going to go there and read a little piece there because this is where the writer of Hebrews talks about Esau and gives us this spiritual warning that this is a cautionary tale. It's not necessarily a typography, but it's a tale to say, like, be wary of this. It's not that Esau is some abnormal, freakishly unconcerned person. He's normal. He's what's in our heart. Esau represents the flesh in that sense. Verse 14 in Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Seek spiritual stuff. Go after the spiritual life. It's worth your time. It's worth Sunday nights to spend an hour a week 
studying the word. It's worth Sunday mornings. It's worth Wednesday nights. It's worth your daily devotional time every morning for 15, 30 minutes, whatever you do. It's worth your time. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is common. Many people get defiled this way. They don't seek God, and then they wonder why they have bitterness in their life, why they have troubles in their life. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food, wasn't a morsel of food, I'm sorry, writer of Hebrews should have put, for one red red, sold his birthright. You know, for you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There are many people that are going to get to heaven and say, Lord, Lord, I want the inheritance. And what's the Bible say? The Lord's going to turn back on him and say, I don't know you. Who are you? What a horrible, heart-wrenching moment in that person's life that you can live and ignore the spiritual your whole life, get to heaven and think that the Lord's going to know who you are. It doesn't work that way. The Lord asks for your heart. He asks for it now. And you should be pursuing it, pursuing peace with all people and holiness, which means to live a righteous life without which no one will see the Lord. You can live your whole life and never encounter the Lord because you never spent time trying. Jesus says, if you seek, you shall find, for I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is waiting for people to seek him out. So we should spend our lifetime pursuing peace with other people. That's the counteraction to bitterness and profanity finding its way into our life. Hebrews doesn't mention that Esau was tired. He didn't mention that it was a whole, it's as a morsel of food, but it was actually a whole meal. There was bread, stew, and there was drink and beverages. Jacob, it's kind of cool. Jacob just didn't give him the stew. He gave him everything he wanted. Here, you can have a feast. Because Jacob recognized that the stuff didn't mean anything, but the spiritual inheritance meant everything. And then as the history books write it down, I love that Hebrews doesn't even mention that Esau was tired. That's an excuse. It says he was near death. He was wore out. But none of that matters. And you run into people who don't take time with the Lord and they say, well, I just don't have time. I, I couldn't get to it this morning. I'm so busy. I'm so tired. I can't do this. I've used those excuses my whole life. And I have a lovely wife who just looks at me like, so make the time. If it matters, make the time. And I'm like, but I'm not an early riser. I can barely wake up. Who cares? Get up and do it. And if it's important to you, make the time to do it. If you're not an early riser, then do it at night. And eventually I figured that I, I never really had time at night either because I was too tired. So then I gave in and said, okay, let's do morning devotions. Because I do want to seek the Lord. My heart is after the Lord. But as much as my heart wants to seek the Lord, I also struggle with the flesh and I get tired and I want a meal. But notice in Hebrews, none of that is part of the story. The only thing that's part of the story is that that you, you shouldn't be like a fornicator or a profane person like Esau who gave up for all that food his entire birthright. You have a birthright, a promise from God that you can inherit the kingdom of heaven. But if you never seek it, you never pursue it, it's gone. That's a, that's a really horrible warning for people that want to serve the Lord. Or it's a beautiful thing that you get to spend some time with the Lord. 
In comparison to the blessing, the trade-off is not worth it. That's the God's truth. But I, I really wanted to build up Esau a little bit because in our flesh, we all have some of that in us. We all struggle with that. So to think Esau was stupid here, he's just as stupid as I've been for 30 of my 40 years, right? He made all the same mistakes I've made, gives up the internal for the temporary, gives up the inheritance for the food. And the food might be good and you might be tired and whatever, but he's taken the immediate needs and he's given them up for the eternal needs. And we trade it, we do it all the time. And across the planet, many people do this, is what Hebrew says. How many minutes in your day do you have to spend with the Lord? And I know that uh, Pastor Jeff and Madison would always say, like, I know if people, I know where people's hearts are if I if I look at their pocketbook. And I like to think, you know, where people's hearts are if you look at their stopwatch, if you look at the clock, if you look at their calendar. How many minutes a day are you spending with the Lord? How many minutes of your day are you spending eating food, taking care of your physical needs? And I think on a daily basis, I gotta wrestle with the conviction that. Oh, I spend about X amount of time eating food and I spend about X amount of time in the word. And it took me years in life to try to make my spiritual needs take priority over those physical needs. Some people fast to really get their heart in the right place on that, right? They say, during that time when I was going to be eating food, I'm going to go study the word and pray instead. Because I want to flip the tables on that eternal versus temporary thing. So Jacob's failing here is that he's... It's not that he wants the birthright. I don't think that's a problem with Jacob. The failing of Jacob is that he's pushing that agenda of God's instead of trusting that God's going to take care of it. We've seen that God takes care of some pretty amazing situations in order to keep his word. Jacob's got his word. He should have just trusted that the Lord would do it. Uh, So Jacob's got some hard lessons to learn in trusting God, which is what we'll see in the next few chapters. In uh, chapter 26, verses 34 through 35, Esau's going to disregard the spiritual calling of God. He's going to intermarry with some Hittites. You see that just coming up in the next bit. Um, And he's going to become a grief to his mother. Uh, And that's coming up in the next chapter. Ultimately, God is wise in prophesying that Jacob will rule over Esau. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. And when Esau gives the birthright up, he willingly gives it up. Even though it was a one-on-one conversation with Jacob, it's very important because Esau just made a legal trade. And whether or not uh, that's going to be recognized, because Esau is going to want it back, but he's he's giving it away. It's gone. So in God's eyes, he's just going to follow through with what's what's happened here. And I think for God, it's just got to be something where God looks at that trade and just goes, how foolish humans can be that they trade that for what I've had to offer them. And But God already saw it coming. He knew it was going to happen. And now he's like, well, there it just happened. Jacob, you're my guy. You want it, and you're working for it and you're spending time in the tents, and you're taking care of that business, then you're the one that's going to get that inheritance. Um, There's no such thing as luck. Or a lot of successful people say they make their own luck. They put the work in. If you want a healthy, robust spiritual life with joy and happiness and peace and great relationships and family and friends that love you, put the time in. Put the work in and do it like Jacob was doing. And trust that God will take care of it. Don't make sneaky little trades with your brother or sister. and and know that that's the case, that there's going to be an inheritance that God will keep his promises. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. I can't wait to talk a little bit about uh, what this looks like, Lord, to 
give our lives to you and put our spiritual inheritance before our needs, before our physical needs. Lord, help us to learn, uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, help us to learn from these stories. We're reminded of them. We've heard these stories before, Lord. But help us to continue to be convicted by what the stories are trying to tell us. Uh, that we cannot let bitterness take root in our life or troubles. That what needs to take root in our life is your promises, your word, and your Holy Spirit. So let those things grow and let the things of this world die. Lord, let us never make excuses. It doesn't matter how tired we are. It doesn't matter how hungry we are. It doesn't matter if we have iron deficiency syndromes. Lord, none of that matters, Lord. What matters is that we seek you. Uh, we don't make excuses. We get over that and we seek the responsibility that your kingdom uh, comes with, Lord. We want that responsibility. We want to be one of your servants. We want to be serving you because as Levi was praying, we want our life to have meaning. Um, and Lord, there is no meaning outside of your kingdom. We can't make meaning because we're meaningless and you're meaningful. So Lord, we want the fullness that you have to offer. We seek you in that and we're ready to put in 10, 20 years of faithful service uh, to get to that inheritance and that blessing. We're not seeking what we see today or this year, Lord. We are seeking the eternal kingdom, uh, Lord, and we will pursue and faithfully go after it for years if that's what it takes to get the inheritance. Uh, so, Lord, help us to follow that model, uh, to learn from fools and to grow from the wise. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.